0: Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Before I start, though, I would like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today from the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders, past and present, and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in today. I will be speaking today with acclaimed poet, essayist and editor Omar Sehka about his latest work, a debut novel, for the first time filling out the worlds he so powerfully creates in his poetry. Omar is the award-winning author of two poetry collections, These Wild Houses and The Lost Arabs. His latest work, Son of Sin, explores a complex web of family ties and ruptures, cultural connection and dislocation, diaspora and home of deep silences and sudden violence, queerness, literature, faith and the hidden worlds, both metaphorical and supernatural that push against the structure of reality. The book follows uh, Jamal Smith, a young queer Muslim trying to escape a past in which memory and rumour trace ugly shapes in the dark. Omar Sehka joins me now to discuss Son of Sin, his writing and the craft behind it. Omar, welcome to Backstory.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Now, I did not mention uh, which awards uh, you won with your poetry, but one of them was very famously the, the Prime Minister's Award in 2020. You've also been shortlisted for numerous awards for that uh, sorry, work. We don't
1: we don't have to go through all that, so it's all, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the
0: reason that I would like to do that, or at least to touch on it, is that people will know your name and they'll know your name from the poetry that you write. And I feel as though this is one of those uh, instances where, you know, people are going to talk about uh, shifting um, media that you write and all the shifting way you write. But I feel as though... This is such an extension of all of the poetry that you've written that it feels totally congruous with your overall work. How did you feel, though, being able to stretch out beyond the bounds of, of that demanding form that is poetry?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good point point. Um, and I'm really happy to hear it, um, that the connection is obvious. Um, my voice is the same. In in many ways, um, and yeah, and I think you even you even touched on it in your introduction um, that if poetry is you know small moments of insight, um, it's language uh, synthesized, it's it's emotion synthesized into language, and um, this novel really is me showing you the world that I came from, uh, where those insights are generated.
0: Yeah, I I was reflecting when I was reading it on a piece that, in fact, people can look it up online. Um, you, You read so beautifully a piece called Ghosting the Ghetto and I was struck by a couple of lines in that poem, Climbed Mount Lebanon in the Lounge, cooling our bodies beneath old olive trees, And later on in that poem, in that metaphor and country are one. And I really felt so strongly the, while, you know, this covered different landscape to the book, I felt that landscape in that book, that, you know, that sense of, you know, what it's like to be someone in diaspora, um, what it's, you know, how that tangibly feels in this, not only in beautiful metaphor, but in a sense that's concrete, weirdly. (laughs) I, you know, I, I, did, I did feel that reading through this and I'm, I am wondering, you know, what is it that, you know, when you went through, because I feel on each, in each line of this book that there is work going on on a line by line basis. How did you let yourself into the narrative just to flow along in long form without stopping yourself to interrogate every line as a poet would?
1: Uh, The short answer is that I didn't, Um, which is to say I was fairly obsessive um, with the sentences, um, you know, to the point where my wife would say to me, like, stop, you know, it's not, it's not poetry. It's, you don't have to, (laughs) you don't have to do this uh, or treat it in the same way. Um, But, you know, I can't help that kind of uh it's anxiety really I would call it people call it perfectionism that's a nicer word for it maybe but it's it's this anxiety um that never really leaves me and and forces me to kind of constantly uh retrace my steps retrace my words um but at the same time you know I feel like I have been waiting a very long time to tell my story um I do feel like I grew up in a kind of enforced silence, uh, cultural silence. On the one hand, uh, in our family, you know, you're not supposed to speak back to the, your elders. Um, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong, right? It's very hard to understand that. That literal truth has no bearing. It's that person's older than you, shut your mouth. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of just has been bursting out of me these past few years in poetry and in essays, and in and now in in this novel. Um, and all I really have to do is is let it happen, um, and then go over it fairly obsessively to to elevate it.
0: I, w- I want to come back to that idea of silence, but before we do, let's take a step back. I would love you to for the reader, in your own words, talk about what you feel this story is about.
1: Yeah, this story follows a character named Jamel Smith, who uh, was born and raised in Western Sydney like me. Um, I call him, in the acknowledgements of the book, a distant avatar. Um, and I feel like that's uh, true. Um And it is about his struggles to uh, be himself, really, in his family and in this country. Um, And I really wanted to showcase his life over a significant number of years uh, so that you could see the impact of the events that are occurring at home um, and then also in society, both uh, nationally speaking and internationally.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpick and, and I want to get into it because there's many, many themes that you cover. But to come back to this idea of, of silence, I found that quite an affecting element in this book. Uh, you, There's one moment when uh, the character sort of, you know reflects that the neighbors are always calling the cops when they're just having living their normal life having parties having barbecues you know doing having gatherings of people um you know because the neighbors obviously are you know it's a racially motivated uh, thing that's happening um and there's this reflection that you know in our families only silence you know is the the kind of scary thing or words to that effect or is the the thing to be to be scared of. And I wanted to kind of touch on that because you do powerfully show that, this idea of, you know, what lurks behind the silence, what silence means, literal silence but also the metaphorical silence of someone unable to say who they are without consequences that are beyond devastating. How much of this informed, you know, you've just said this is literally your reason for writing. Uh, How much of the, the work is really about this? silence and and
1: disrupting it yeah a lot of it you know a lot of it um it's yeah it's it's hard um but I did I did want to kind of illustrate how much um this silence is Jamez um and by extension mine that In our family and in our communities, it's so boisterous, it's so raucous, Um, we're usually so loud. And so, even even what he is being kind of forced to do, which is be quiet, is a strangeness. Um, And then, as well, there's the silence of the, the silences that. We enforce on ourselves um, the things that we're not willing to articulate, to face on our own, um, and these I think can be the most difficult. Um, and I hope I show you that in in the novel, mm. um, because what happens when you do speak? What happens when you do articulate these things? Um, you know, your fears will say that. It's only going to be damaging, uh, but there's more to it than that.
0: Yeah. The corollary to the silence is, of course, what you were touching on, which is this sense of constant noise, of constant things happening. And one thing that occurs to me, I also come from quite a collectivist family, is this idea of, you know, it's very easy to hide in that, that in fact, you know, um, lies become or what's not spoken becomes the only way you can have a boundary from the people around you in, in, you know, where you bleed into one another in the normal course of things, you know, these sometimes families that seem like they're always talking are the ones that keep the deepest secrets. And I felt this quite keenly reading this, that it's that, that sense that you almost are the other person or you are, you have, you have a right or you own the other person is very there. Um, and so the only way to get a sense of yourself is in fact to have secrets
1: or you know lies yeah I think there's a there's a difference between sequence secrets and silence right mm. um, that they're they're related
0: they are related um, yeah
1: and I think you're absolutely right in saying that um, some secrets are necessary for uh, our survival Um You know, and I certainly felt that growing up, uh, even as at the same time, um, those secrets also felt like they were killing me. And there's this like unresolvable tension um, between the two. And I'm still kind of dealing with that, Mm. you know, because for all that we speak about coming out as an idea, um, you know, it's not really what occurs. Um, certainly not in my family where, you know, damaging and horrible truths can be uttered like a mile, you know, just like so many in a conversation that you can't keep track of them. Um, and what happens is, you uh, forgetting um you know I think I've had a kind of coming out style conversation with my mom um like six times Mm -hmm. since and and I only came out to her like several months ago you know so it's not like um but there's this kind of I can't deal with this I can't think about it um I can't handle it because if I do, then we're going to have to change. Mm. And so it gets buried.
0: Yeah. It's really beautifully realised in this book, these complexities. There's There's nothing in this that, you know, no character in this that doesn't feel as though you're getting, you know, multiple facets of them. They're not simple characters. They're not there's no you know easy you know simple cliche that you're leaning on in any instance um, you know Jamal's relationship with his mother is you know you could say it's tumultuous to put it mildly it's violent it's you know you know it has a, such a strong you know clannishness to it but at the same time it's incredibly damaging um it's so complex but at the same time there's this real this real sense of you know you know hala um the mother being someone who has done you know she's she's got her own kind of wild character who is the product of her own her own struggles you never feel like you're wholly condemning her at any stage for the quite violent way that she reacts to her sons i'm really interested in that relationship because it is a crucial one um for the narrator; um, he literally, you know, his mother literally takes his name as a brand of ownership um, over him uh, from an absentee or completely absent father, um, and made and gives her gives her son her last name. So there's this real mm. moment where, you know, there's several little uh, deaths, not to be punny, um, that uh, Jamal has, but there's, um, you know, this is kind of the original one where his identity is reforged by his mother. Um, can you talk a bit about that element?
1: Yeah. Um, it's unusual in our culture for uh, children to take their mother's name. Uh, it's expected that they have their father's name and uh, I did until I was a, you know, a teenager and so this is actually from my life um and but I I think there's something there's something also beautiful in it um because it wasn't until she felt that he was being taken away from her somewhere in some way um that she realized even though they lived together, she hadn't actually claimed him um and yeah I, I think, It's those nuances that are really important. Um, Like you say, I I never want to be uh, completely condemning a person, um, whether imagined or not.
0: Mm. There are, you know, there are other instances of this, um, memorably, you know, without giving too much away, Jamal's relationship with his father um, that pops up later in the book. Um, You know, relationship with cousins that are very complicated and sometimes slightly disturbing as well, that, you know, you're not quite sure where to place. All of them are done with such a humanity, despite really not pulling any punches. There's a lot of, you know, descriptions of violence that are, you know, quite extreme and they're not sugar-coated. You give them pause at the same time as winding in these mitigations that the reader can absorb, I'm fascinated in how you've done it and would love to have spent more time just going back over how you laid in these ideas of a person that we can absorb without recoiling. How do you feel you managed to achieve that balance between this kind of really hard-hitting realism that's quite brutal and, and a sense of a person beyond that?
1: Well, I think what's important there is time. And that's why I needed the book to cover, you know, I think it's almost 15 years um, because I needed to show you the world and the environment um, that these characters lived in. And when you see that, you have a chance to understand why and how they behave uh, the way that they do. Um, We're all products of our environment. And one of the really hard things to learn when you're growing up is that uh, you know your parents, the older people around you, were shaped by very different environments, um, and so um, of course there's a distance between you. And yeah, I think that's that's the main part of it, but also. For me, and I think for us more broadly, you know, my family, uh, my community, there's so much awful shit that happens that we can only respond to it with laughter, like (laughs) half the time. Um, And it's always been strange to me to read books that like hinge on like one traumatic moment or like one, (laughs) and it's like a plot point. It's like this sad thing happened to this otherwise... Like perfect life,
0: um, mm.
1: or otherwise, like middle class life, and you know, I've I've forgotten more traumas than uh, I've seen in these <laughs> books, and it's just like, and I feel like that's true for for a lot of us. You know, we, um, yeah, we we are in some ways desensitized to the extremes. Um, and we're used to laughing about it. And it's usually mm. not until I'm in a conversation with um, someone outside uh, my experiences, I guess, someone outside the community, I'll say something as a joke and, you know, kind of laugh about it and they'll be like, what? Yeah. Yeah. That happened? Oh, my God, are you okay? <laughs> or, or you all need therapy, which is true. Uh, or, you know, some other kind of, Exclamation! Um, but yeah, these are the ways um, in which we live, and there is we experience m- them. We experience them all a bit differently.
0: Yeah, there is one moment, though, isn't there, where you know Jamal's with a friend who's, you know, acknowledging the kind of quite horrific abuse he got. You know, that trying to push him into playing Aussie rules, and from his father that relationship, and in the telling of it, you know, Jamal's kind of like impulse rugby system league. rugby league sorry afl yeah, such a melbourneian so. look at look yeah. at what i've done on Fletcher <laughs> show. of course it's rugby league It's like horror show you know um football shall we say or rugby um so he's being pushed into a sport he doesn't want to play his um you know his father acts re- reacts brutally he relates this and jamal's processing it and immediately wants to make light of it in some way or do a you know kind of quid pro quo of, like, horror stories and then move on. Um, Instead, he just suddenly realises he can't, that, in fact, this is awful and he has to sit with it. I'm really interested in those little moments because it is destabilising this normalisation of of the trauma that many of the characters have gone through. Can you chat about that? Because it is, to me, it, it did feel like a moment of this is the shaping of someone who doesn't want to look away, a writer, in fact
1: yeah, um i yeah, this is one of the really big things, I think in male relationships um particularly um, but maybe just even 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 more broadly than that, um, where we've developed this. Um, kind of this mask of indifference and you know we just call it banter when we're often actually just being cruel to each other Um, and then one of the things I wanted to dig into in this book is that kind of habit you know the muscle memory of relationships and how do we how do we break out of them Mm. um and it does require uh an awareness of the script this kind of script that we all carry with us about how we're going to respond to things and um so once you have that having that awareness but then also consciously acting against it and it's really difficult because it feels awful
0: it's, it feels... you feel
1: so vulnerable hmm. uh in doing it but you also kind of in some way in some way it's you feel like you're uh making the other person feel bad by by not dismissing it and that's I don't know why we act that way um but it's it's yeah it's not true. you're
0: not playing your part in the little pantomime that yeah that keeps things calm on the surface somewhat, yeah, I think it's a it occurs to me and I, and certainly want to talk more about this later on that Jamal's particularly well placed as a character, and perhaps you as a writer, obviously you as a writer, to explore some of this because of his place uh, in the kind of liminal space between worlds. So there is an observation necessary in that to not quite fit the narrative ever oneself means you're always questioning narratives. Um, You know, it's something I've experienced in my own life um, for not dissimilar reasons, but I think here it's really beautifully realised that, you know, there were many moments when Jamal's sitting back and going, how do I fit here? And so therefore... Is any of this as it should be? There's a natural questioning when you sit in those in-between spaces.
1: Yeah, I think as an artist you have to make uncertainty your home and I guess I am very well positioned in that sense because uh, it's always been my home Um, until, you know, actually... Until very recently, I would say I have felt some sense of precarity um, until I met my wife and fell in love with her. And I think it was that, knowing that I'm, I'm loved completely, um, that she knows me and sees me, all of me, uh, is actually what has enabled me to go into all of these um, kind of terrifying moments again.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's a really, I think, you know, this is your life experience and I think in, and, and in fact I do want to talk about that because to write this book <laughs> you, you obviously had to go into spaces that are, you know, riffing off your own experiences in life but a deep dark places that that are triggering. And I want to talk about how that's, you know, transformed into fiction in a way that feels authentic. But that does give you a sort of basis, having that, that support. We don't often talk about the need for writers to, you know, put themselves in the dangerous place. How do you do that um, if you don't have a solid support? You shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Bottom line, you shouldn't. There's so much we've touched on in the books that I really want to explore so much more, and I'm hoping after we come back uh, we can also touch on one element that I particularly found you know, I loved in this book and that you did so well and perhaps have a reading as well.
1: Yeah, sounds good.
0: Great. Uh, so we'll be back shortly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and on today's show, uh, we're doing a special in conversation with acclaimed poet, essayist, editor Omar Seker about his debut novel, Son of Sin. Omar, I want to talk about one element of this book that I'm sure is going to be discussed, and that is this inclusion of the hidden world that is so subtly wound in. Jinns and angels live alongside the characters. They're sometimes trying to push through, especially at night, but sometimes not at night, (laughs) to, you know, get to the characters, to mess with them, to... uh, reflect their worlds in a in a frightening way as well it works as a metaphor but it is really real um, for the characters and the world that they inhabit can you talk about this because I feel like it is going to be talked about as magic realism and I think it is only in the sense that it is realism um, it's a part of this it's knitted into the fabric of this world um, talk talk to me about how you've you've blended these realities in with
1: the main story reality yeah there's no blending of reality I mean it is just our reality
0: yeah
1: um and I definitely don't want people to uh talk about it as though it's magic realism it's not um it's this is a social realist novel as far as I'm concerned um and yeah angels and Jin and uh devils are part of part of our uh, understanding of the world. And they're quite literal figures, um, as far as the Muslim community is concerned. Um, And it does something to you that does something to you when you're a kid, and you are introduced to this idea, um, that there are invisible beings kind of watching you all the time. Um, And so uh, I definitely wanted to have that uh, as part of the book because it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be true to life otherwise.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I felt. I mean, and this is the thing: it is naturalistically drawn. It doesn't feel incongruous at all with the worlds um, that we're reading about. I want you to give us a little bit of a glimpse of that, if that's okay. Um, perhaps there's a reading that we discussed that um, that illustrates this that how. Congress these worlds are.
1: Yeah. So this is a short reading from my book, Son of Sin. Stop talking about them, Ranya said. You invite their attention. They each had experiences, and despite Ranya's warning, they told them over and over again. Jamel's first began as a dream. He was in his data in Zydbul's flat in Warwick Farm. Their lounge, with its flower-print couches, framed Quranic tapestries on the wall, and red Persian carpet, seemed carved out of another time. He was both present and not, could see everything and only the back of his head, as though he walked behind himself. He followed the figure into the hallway, to the first bedroom on the left, And as his double opened that door, he turned and smiled at Jamal. His eyes were molten black, and the look of malevolent joy on his face froze Jamal's blood. He woke up. He was on the floor, enveloped by Jihad's and Sarah's snores. He didn't see his doppelganger enter the room. He was simply there, his eyes windows of night, his hands around his throat. Jamal tried to scream and nothing came out. was only a relentless wave of pain and fear. He told the others it stopped when he recited the Fatiha, and sometimes that was true. Other times it went on, it seemed, until the jinn got bored. They had little proof of the divine without these episodes of devilry. In theory, one implied the existence of the other, but Jamal felt nothing except terror. No matter how hard he found fasting, Ramadan would always be his favorite time of the year for one simple reason: it was the only time the gates of hell were fastened shut, and evil spirits denied entrance to the world. It was the only time he felt close to safe.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I found I found that quite powerful, and um, and actually, this idea of the jinn as these incredibly dark, dangerous characters that are always there is somewhat leavened uh, at the end when, uh, you know, there's a djinn that sort of appears in a way that becomes a moment of humour almost, um, that their dark presence is, they're trying to be ominous, but actually the characters are sort of like, eh, you know, treating them like a family, an annoying family member, which I thought was, you know, just a really wonderful kind of, um, this idea of acceptance, I guess, of, of the world one finds oneself in, um, no matter how scary it is, no matter how dark it is, it kind of really felt like the perfect way to describe that in many ways.
1: Yeah, and it's often portrayed in mainstream culture as um, a kind of horror story, right? Um, but there's a there's a passage before that what I just read which. Um, describes them as free-willed spirits of the invisible world, um, which is true as far as um, our religion and culture is concerned. They're not malevolent, all of them, right? Um, they have their and, own agenda. <laughs> sorry? They have
0: their own agenda, much like people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, a- exactly. Um, and... I remember when I was talking to my auntie one time and she said, you know, uh, a Jin could be Catholic <laughs> if yeah. it wanted. Yeah. You know, a Jin could be a uh, a cat. Like, it, it, it's entirely up to them. Um, they are a, a separate race um, who have their own agency, like humans um, and unlike angels who don't.
0: Funny, because I uh, thought of the character of Hala as, as very kind of gin like in some ways, this kind of mercurial character that had, you know, w- was wild at heart and had been contained in ways that didn't work for her. She has that quality to her. So I thought that that interaction later on in the book between her and a gin felt very natural to me. Of course, she would speak their language mm. and feel, you know, as a weird kind of slightly dismissive kinship Um you know, and and an interesting character who doesn't play by the rules of, um, you know, what she was brought up to do or be. She, you know, is imperfect, um, has is perhaps misunderstood, uh, is misunderstood, um, is seen as dangerous or violent at times, but in fact is much more complex than that. It does, it felt to me like an echo. I I hope that's not too much of a stretch, but it definitely there was it felt like there was a relationship between those entities.
1: That is an interesting observation. That's yeah. all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: Well, you know, again, I feel like this. We are kind of t- very much cherry picking what what's going on in this book. It's not. A, I'm. It's a very decent size. At, um knocking up close to three hundred words for a novel, but it's it contains pages. pages <laughs> sorry, p- words. Pages. <laughs> not talking <laughs> about your poetry. Novel. Very short novel. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. Second today. I appreciate that. Um, the 300 words. But it's really, you know, you, I think probably your writing style of like <laughs> of really compressing things gives it that, that weight, that heft, that it does feel like there's just so much to unpick here because you've kind of, you know, again, that, that ability, that poet's ability to um, imbue each line, each thought, with so much more than, you know, the literal amount of words on the page. So to start on just, to touch on just some of what, you know, is is dealt with in this, in this book, a really big one, obviously, is the idea of queerness. Uh, we have touched on that earlier in the interview, uh, the idea of queerness within the context of uh, the intersecting cultures. Jamel is a part of um, particularly the idea of the, the lack of acceptance or the lack of, of um, rightness of it within that world and finding a way to make that right somehow um, is a big theme. I want you to talk a little bit about that, but also I I have to say, you know, you write sex in this you know, in a way that is both absolutely, you know, no holds barred, you're going there, you're writing detail, but it also has a warmth and, you know, realness to it that I feel is... It's worth noting because there's a lot of bad sex, there's a lot of bad sex writing. And I feel like this book is an example of you know what you can do to do it well. So maybe we can touch on that as well.
1: Okay. Um so am I talking about sex? Well, maybe if we start about... with the
0: idea, <laughs> what am I talking about? If we start what? with the idea of of queerness itself and within the context of this book and how you explored it.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think it's not for me a a matter of our queerness is treated as wrong within, um, you know, the Arab Muslim um, community. Uh, It's treated as wrong within the Australian community. Um, And so there's that double, that doubling effect um, at work. And um, I don't, I don't know that this is something that is ever going to be reconciled necessarily, personally speaking. I think it's more about my queerness, my faith, um, my cultures, um, and my relationship to them is, is fluid and kind of always changing. So um, it's more about allowing that, um, attending to it. Um, and yeah, and I think and I wanted to show that I in the book, you know, you see the effects not just on Jamal, but also on his friends, um, on uh, Illo and Emi, uh, his Samoan and, and Bosnian um, queer friends in Western Sydney, and uh, who were also grappling with just growing up in Australia and being queer and Mm. in a very violent and hyper-masculine space.
0: It kind of speaks, I mean, again, to that idea of diaspora as well, isn't it? Because there is this kind of holding on to elements of culture that would not in a home country necessarily be held on to in quite the same way. And I think that there's that, you know, these intersecting elements that go on, but also that idea of, you know, like there isn't a binary here, there isn't one, Mm. you know, everyone as you've described struggles and particularly Jamal struggling with, you know, coming out as bi or understanding their their own nature, which is itself again uh, between these absolute categories that everyone wants to force people into. Um, There's nothing about Jamal that is a binary, you know, And I think in many ways, one of the things about this that's so interesting is that the struggle to understand queerness is really beyond that a struggle to understand being between, you know, the idea of binary cultures that somewhat Mm -hmm. I feel in, you know, we're we're starting to to understand the idea of, say, uh, gender fluidity or uh, non-binary gender. I feel sometimes more than the idea of non-binary race or culture um, in our quite homogenised society, I think that there is also that idea of, you know, what a, what mm. is it to be um, between these other worlds and how does one define oneself in a more complex and nuanced way?
1: Oof, I don't know about non-binary race. I'm not quite sure what that means. I mean, there's, there's, there's mixed race.
0: Mixed race, yeah.
1: Turkish and um Arab uh but I grew up in the Australian context. Um and I guess about yeah, being
0: reductive be... rather than saying it is a literal you know interpretation yeah, I, of that. I, I, it's more I finding that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And an awareness of how you relate to the aspects of identity, right? Um that uh, define us mm. and so and you know my great grandparents were afghan um but i don't call myself afghan um i have no relationship to them to that place um and maybe that will change one day You know, God willing, I don't know. Um, But, yeah, I I don't like binaries, um, certainly, and I'm against borders and uh, it's always more interesting to be fluid. Absolutely.
0: And I think that, you know, a book like this does start to challenge um, blind assumptions about anything, effectively anything that gives an insight into a character in their full complexity, in the full complexity of where they come from, of how that works, starts to dismantle, I guess, a lot of the, the assumptions mm. that are made more broadly in society. It's a real, you know, I don't want to use that act of empathy um, trope, but I guess it is the only time of pause that we have is spending time like this in long form in someone else's perspective, forced to kind of, you know, engage with complex ideas and themes. I'm really intrigued so you know with that in mind as to how you felt writing it. I mean this is unpacking a lot of things that you yourself may must have thought about uh, have mm. talked about have written about. Mm. It's your story and yet not as you say it's a distant avatar of yourself so you have some critical distance in writing it. But approaching the page with all that in mind, mm-hmm. thinking about what you're going to pin down, how you're going to do it, how you're going to capture that. How did that feel to try to do?
1: Yeah. It was haunting and painful, um, and I developed this obsessive tick where I was quite literally tearing out my beard uh, as I wrote, and to the point where I started developing patches. Um, and it was, I was using the pain to literally distract myself from um, the pain that I was feeling while writing. Uh, and I needed therapy to understand that and get away from it. And I want to, yeah highlight this we touched on it earlier the the need for uh support um you know this book didn't happen by chance didn't happen by accident wasn't easy to do um and I have lived a fair amount of it and so um writing isn't enough you know you need help you need medical support um and I've had that and I'm very grateful to have had it. Um, and you also need love. And I have that too, mm. um, thank God. So yes, it was, it was hard. I got through it. Um, and um, I shared what I was going to do with my closest friends um, as well. So we had those um conversations um which were not easy but ultimately it's what needed to happen
0: and then you have to go out and talk about it
1: yeah yeah you do and it, it sucks <laughs> it sucks to be honest you know uh yeah you spend 2 years writing this thing and then you kind of have to talk about it all the time. And really I just want to say to everyone, just just read it <laughs> and then yeah. go talk to each other about it mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like, you know, maybe every now and then include me. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great point, Emma. There's this presumption. I mean, let's be honest, um, you write a book, the idea is to get out there and sell the book and writers, you know, as you've just described so eloquently are spending so much time really pulling out the depths of themselves to create these works, particularly, you know, a work of this kind of sensitivity and complexity. And then you have to go out and, and kind of chill a bit for it. And it's, it is, it's a tough call for a writer. You're obviously someone who has done public speaking and have that, that kind of element that can maybe give you a level of distance. But, yeah, it's a, it's a big ask.
1: It's a lot of extra work is what I'll say. The reason I do it um, isn't because I think, you know, this is gonna move so many uh, extra copies of my book. I know it's not really. Um, The reason that I do it is because there is so much um, confusion. There is so much misinterpretation deliberately of uh, Arabs and Muslims uh, and uh, queer people. Uh, as well in our society and so I do feel um, that I have to kind of be part of the shaping um, of the book and how it's talked about I have to be present um, so that I can ensure that um, it's not used for harm
0: yeah well I feel as though uh, there's so much more I want to ask you about you've been more than generous and and given what we've just been discussing thank you um i do hope uh people prove you wrong and then go out and buy enormous numbers of the book uh because it is fantastic and deserves to be read and thank you for the contextualization today that was really fantastic um so
1: thank you so much
0: yeah omar musa thank you so much for joining me today (laughs) on backstory
1: um <laughs> thank you for having
0: me it's, it's been a genuine pleasure i have to say also i've I haven't been able to stop looking at your amazing bookshelf as you as I had discussed with you before it's great thanks so much yeah. uh that was uh omar seker um live uh, in conversation talking about his incredible book uh, son of sin um really uh, amazing work um. And I'm really uh, apologise for any mistakes that I have recently made with naming people. Um, Omaseka is the uh, author of the book. And um, it is a fantastic work that um, I uh, very much recommend you read, go out and buy it, um, listen back to the interview, forgive me my uh, many mistakes this morning. I have to say, I was particularly moved by this book and uh, it did actually, um, you know, it's not uh, that often that you uh, get the opportunity to really get under the skin of something that uh, that moves you so much personally. So please do go out there and uh, grab that uh, work. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.